this theory that like people of color are queered by default because stuff like heterosexuality and the gender binary were things like invented and imposed by colonizers as a way to divide and classify and control us. And of course, they affect us in very, very real ways because for centuries we've been programmed to believe that anything outside of those things mm. are not normal. My Aboriginality is really important to me. You know, it took me so long to find it, to connect back to it. And it's really set my spirit at peace. So, mm. you know, more than queer culture ever did, it didn't make me feel mm. at peace. Just that knowledge that you're in a space where people understand and you don't have to censor yourself or you don't have to explain yourself. You know you feel safe enough to say, I need to decolonize my desire. Having a community, find it, they're out there and they are wonderful, wonderful people and they want to find you too. Welcome to QR Code, an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers discussing diverse and intersecting topics. QR Code is created and produced on Wurundjeri land in the studios of 3CR in Fitzroy, Nam, Melbourne. My name is Anya Saravanan. In today's episode, I speak to Zoya Gill, a non-binary mixed-race migrant working in early childhood policy and strategy, Peter Waples Crow, a Ngarigo queer artist and Aboriginal health worker at Thorn Harbour Health, and Anna Maria Gomides, an Afro-Latina writer of fiction, non-fiction, and poetry. In this episode, Zoya, Peter, Anna, and I will be discussing their intersecting cultural and queer identities, racism in the queer scene, and access to healthcare for folks that look and sound like them. Here's Zoya. Coming out as queer was a very long and fraught process. I was deeply closeted to both myself and then everyone else until I was maybe 23. And then I came out as gay. And it took me a very long time to start realising that I was genderqueer. I only came out happily as genderqueer maybe in the past couple of years and only began to feel a connection with that maybe even just in the past six or so months. That's the thing with the idea of queer is that you're constantly queering your identity. Talk to me about the experience of being biracial and living and growing up in different countries, but also, you know, having an Indian background and how all of that sort of shaped your queerness and gender identity. In some ways, being mixed race helps because I've already am other in any context. You know, the most the rest of my family, other than my sister, the rest of my family are fully Indian. So they have a very strong sense of identity and who they are. Whereas I was always a little bit on the outside, not in a bad way, but little jokes like, you know, when I was really little, I used to say that my dad was brown, my mum was red and I was orange. Mm. And so I always had a very clear sense of being slightly different and being a mix. And I never saw it as a negative thing. There's a lot of freedom, I think, in being somewhat outside. But because you're somewhat outside, you're also always somewhat inside. Growing up in that environment where it was seen as positive to have multiple identities and to shift and move between them meant that when I started realising that maybe I wasn't straight and then realising that maybe I wasn't cis, it just became an extra part of those multiplicities of identities. Mm. And I had learnt very early on how to navigate different spaces. So then being able to navigate and understand that gender space and that sexuality space came 
slightly easier, I think, partly because of it. But obviously, there's that other side of coming from a culture that, as a result of colonial impacts and the history of the British in India, there is a strong streak of homophobia and transphobia. When I go and see family, when I go back home to the UK or to Kenya or to India, I am misgendered in multiple languages constantly. And I suppose if one takes that to get not too academic with that Worfian concept of the internalization of language and how that influences how you think mm. when you come from a language that is gendered mm. the ability to understand living outside of a gender can be quite difficult so whilst being mixed has allowed me to navigate different spaces in my queerness and maybe in some ways connect onto western white side of me has drawn myself more to that side trying to navigate and come to terms with the the indian side of me and the non-gendered side of me is difficult in trying to explain it to family or have it accepted by family mm. and speaking about families and you know not being out to all your family members in in communities how do we deal with that it's so essential to have support and allies it's really really important to know that you've got a person at least one person who you can turn to and feel safe with doing it in a slow process maybe even having conversations with people abstractly about the ideas of queerness to get them on side until eventually you come out in a way where it feels very gentle and natural being a non-white queer body did it feed into how you perceive yourself my world in australia when i first moved here was very white and i think it resulted in a lot of internalized racism that meant that i downplayed the indian side of myself i don't know if it was an overt thing that came as a result of viewing and seeing racism within the queer community or whether it was an internalized issue but there was a very distinct connection between my coming out and my coding myself as white going back to that issue of experiencing racism in the queer community i think it's a combination of racism and racial fetishization queer white able bodied slim somewhat androgynous bodies are held up as the ideal but at the same time if you've got a slight bit of difference you then become a fetishized ideal mm. so when it comes to racism in the queer community what i've experienced is the other side of it meeting people and people going oh you're an interesting mix they're basically saying i love the fact that you are almost white but because you're not you're a little bit different that's intriguing mm. in terms of making that a broader conversation about not just in the dating space but things like accessing healthcare mm. or mental health services have you seen racism play a part in how you accessed those services i've been quite lucky i don't think it has i mean mm. i have experienced some misogyny and homophobia in the health space mm. talk to me um, about that yeah Many years ago, I went to a doctor for a ongoing medical issue that I have that required me to go on medication that meant that I wouldn't be allowed to get pregnant. So the standard procedure for people with ovaries and a womb was to go on the pill whilst also on this medication. And I guess it intersects with mental health. I can't go on the pill. The hormones impact my mental health. and i went to a new doctor to get a check up and get some more prescriptions and maybe look at altering my medical plan and he refused to prescribe me this medication without putting me on the pill and i said i can't obviously i can't go on the pill and on top of that i have recently started a relationship with a woman he's like oh so you're gay i was like well i don't know if i'd categorize myself necessarily as gay but i am not sleeping with cis men at the moment and i said at the same time i practice safe sex and i am pro choice 
So even if I weren't on this medication and I were to get pregnant, I'm not in a place where I'd want to have a child anyway. So I, in all likelihood, would terminate that pregnancy. And he refused to prescribe me the medication initially because of his religious beliefs. And the only way I was able to get the medication was by signing a piece of paper that said if I were to start sleeping with men, I would have to come back to him and reassess. And this makes me think of that same, the same appointment, actually, and this is where a racial issue comes in. The one medication option that he suggested for me, a side effect is an increase in body hair. And he looked at me and he said, but looking at you and your racial makeup and the hair on your body, he went, it's probably not the best idea for you. And that was very difficult because the issue of hair in the Indian community is a, is a big one. When I was a child, my mum was made to make a paste out of gram flour and water and rub it all over my body and rip the hair out of my body. And I screamed and screamed and screamed. And my mum refused to ever do it again. And there's an obsession in my family around removal of hair. And then you combine that with growing up in a white environment, in a white culture where hairlessness is held up. I had so much deep self-hatred in my body about my hair and then to be going into an appointment where I'm already feeling self-conscious and then to be having that and to be feeling very vulnerable and then to be made for more vulnerable by a doctor who refused to acknowledge my reproductive rights and ask very intrusive questions about my sexuality was a really difficult experience. Cried for a very, very, very long time and, and you know, this was eight, seven, eight years ago and it's still something that sits very deeply with me. You're listening to QR Code, a queer health podcast produced at 3CR. Today's episode is on the intersection of cultural and queer identities, racism in the queer scene, and access to healthcare for queer folks who don't fit a particular mold. Here's Peter Waples Crow and Anna Maria Gomides continuing the conversation. I'm a Narigo queer artist. I'm also an Aboriginal health educator for a queer organisation called Thorn Harbour Health. I explore the intersection of being Narigo and queer through visual media. My double barrel name, Waples Crow, is because I grew up in the Waples family, who were non-Indigenous. I was adopted out of um, Narigo country when I was a baby. Been a, like a journey back, and I think the first thing was working out being queer early on, and then later on being Aboriginal and how those two things work or don't work together Mm, yeah yeah and Anna do you want to tell me about yourself and what being queer means to you so before anything else I am a woman of color I'm First Nations and Afro-Latina I was born in Brazil but I've lived in so-called Australia since I was 12 I'm also pretty light-skinned because of the old colonization but I am black and brown and very proud and I'm a writer and I talk about race a lot in my work but when I write from this place I do so as a settler and as an evader I'm also chronically ill which means I struggle with a lot of mental illnesses that manifest in the physical realm of my body. So I tend to move around the slowly around the world way more slowly than others. I find the exercise of defining my gender very frustrating because it's impossible for me to do it in the two languages that are available to me, which mm-hmm. are like Portuguese and English, um, especially Portuguese because it's very gendered. So like, even though I'm gender non-conforming, they then pronouns don't sit right with me because I can't translate them into the language I was taught from birth. What was the experience of figuring out that you were queer like? Back in the day... We didn't have all the diversity amongst the queer rainbow, so it was hard to work out who you were. And all you heard about being a gay man, and at the time, the words, well, I can think of Pufta, Dyke and Tranny, and that's about it. That's the labels we had to choose from when I was young. So I internalised a lot of stuff. 
yeah, have spent a lot of time unpicking that. So my experience of being who I was, yeah, it was really difficult, actually. And then I came into my Aboriginality later because of my adoption, and I already had a queer identity. Thinking about being they, them, and thinking about he, him, and they, them, and now being called auntie and uncle at my age, in and yeah, getting those terms of endearment from younger people, and even ankle, which is a combination of auntie and uncle, so mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really sweet. Yeah, I had to take my queer identity into my Aboriginal identity, and I found that really difficult as well. I think in my life, everything's improved, you know, everything gotten easier, and the things we fought for back in, you know, in my time is where we're at now, where everyone has can choose to be who they want to be, you know, mm. and blur the genders, binaries, and I'm one all for knocking down binaries. The work hasn't been done by our community to look back through journals. We'd have to look through the colonisers' journals because we had an oral culture, and we'll have to explore that. There's big chunks of our, what our roles were pre-colonisation. What I'm trying to do is be a really out queer Narago artist now and um, reinsert stories back into the culture now and mm-hmm. say that we're here and we do belong in the culture. There's a lot of narratives that we are part of colonisation mm-hmm. as queer Aboriginal people and those two identities are quite separate sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you work in the the health sector, the health space. What are your thoughts and based on your experience of, you know, because the queer scene is so white and cis. And for bodies that are not white and cis, what do you think about the way they access healthcare? I work in a mainstream LGBTI health service. And I think, yes, they're struggling with that. It's dominated by cis-gendered white thinking, really. And my experience is that We need options where we want to go. I go down to the Aboriginal Health Service and I really need connection to community. You know, when we get together as Aboriginal LGBTI people, it's really important for us, you know, to be connected to community and do cultural activities. My art practice takes me into the Koori art world, which I'm very thankful for, you know, like I have this nice balance and it probably balances out the fact that I work in a mainstream org and can sometimes feel really like I'm the token. But, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of minorities in that org feel like they're token as well, you know, so I tend to be attracted to the other minorities and form an alliance against the dominant force. There's also, we have a large Aboriginal health service. So what we're moving to do is try to make the Aboriginal services more LGBTI friendly. We're running an inclusion workshop for about 40 Aboriginal health workers and we're starting the conversations there. For queer people of colour, it's really important to have options or where you can get your service. You want to be made to feel welcome in every service you go to. There's questions around confidentiality in Aboriginal services as well because we are a small community and you might have other family members working in that space and you might want your privacy respected. We've gathered a few times in the last few years. Last year we gathered in Shepparton as Aboriginal LGBTI plus community and now we're trying to form an organisation and have it funded by the government that the Koori Pride Network. So hopefully there's great things happening in the space and we're moving forward a bit. I get overwhelmed at whiteness. You know, I'm a fair-skinned person as well. It rubs me up the wrong way most days, and I need a lot of self-care most days and Mm. time out. Mm. In, like, my first feel queer friendship groups, I was often the only brown person, Mm -hmm. and so I was tokenized quite a bit. And I was so thirsty for community that I was trying really hard to look queer and to, like, fit in the aesthetic but it was never enough and 
and it's because the aesthetic itself was white and I am not. And it was also really hard because if I did try to bring up race and culture stuff, mm. it was either overlooked or dismissed. And I felt like I was betraying some kind of secret code. I was reading Audre Lorde's autobiography, Zami. She's talking about being black and gay and a woman in the village. Most of her friends are white. She talks about bringing up the fact that she was black with gay women who weren't and getting the feeling that she like reached a sacred bond of gayness. And yeah, that was in the 50s and we're still doing this stuff now. And I think one of the things that frustrates me as well is that white queers are not particularly mindful or even aware of the needs of queers of color. And it's so disrespectful because we've made so much of that history. We're only remembering now and claiming the names of like Marsha P. Johnson and Storm Delivery and Sylvia Rivera and Ms. Major. They're a huge part of the gay civil rights movements. Even in celebrating that queerness, that black queerness, white queers tend to mess it up. A lot of people, I think, I have this issue with white friends where they tend to concentrate on similarities between us as opposed to differences. But they don't realize that the circumstances for those similarities are different. Mm -hmm. Like a white person's experience of queerness is incredibly different mm -hmm. from a person of colors. Like, for example, I always think about how white queers are like really invested in the coming out narrative as a way of becoming queer. Like the amount of times my white friends pushed me to come out thinking it was like a supportive thing and an encouraging thing. I have so much to lose. Like the stakes are so much higher for us. And that's because if you're a white queer person, the chances are that that's your main identifier. That's the thing that places you within a minority. So coming out to a white queer person is this opportunity to be able to live as their authentic selves. And you know, it might result in broken family ties, which is mm -hmm. traumatic for anyone. But the laws of family for a person of color often means like alienation from their culture and community, uh, which are just as important to us, if not more so than our connections to queerness. Mm. And yeah, white queers lack an understanding, I think, of or even like a desire to understand what it means cutie pock because they don't have to. Like, I remember this white queer friend of mine losing at me once because I was pointing out some probable race stuff in popular culture. They all went all like, I'm sick about talking about this. It's not always, always about race. Why do we have to keep talking about it all the time? I don't want to. That moment in itself was such an example of white privilege because my friend got to take a break from talking about this stuff, but we have to live every day. Like, we don't get a break from thinking and talking about this. Let's talk about racism in the queer community. Tell me about your experiences, maybe also about anti-blackness as well. I just want to reiterate the fact that community is very important to us and I think coming out is a really white queer thing as well and gives people an identity, whereas I feel like in Aboriginal culture, traditionally it was more like you had a place and a role in your tribe. Yeah, a lot of Aboriginal languages aren't gendered as well. And my experience of racism is, you know, sometimes the humour is so derogative in a way and so demeaning of me that I would have no knowledge of culture and that I'm more white because I look like them. So mm -hmm. that's how racism plays out with me. I probably get, you know, I've got privileges because of my fairer skin. You know, I don't get surveilled in shops and 
stuff like that. But it's very hurtful to have my authenticity always questioned. There's a big battle around authenticity. And, you know, I think the things hurt me when people undermine my Aboriginality, which is really important to me, Mm. you know, in that sense of it's really been my whole life is to connect back to Narigo. And I feel like I've I've been giving a tribal name. It's really important. And a community way of living is really important as, Mm. as opposed to being really individualistic. I had to take a queer identity and out queer identity. I mean, what is an authentic Aboriginal story? We all make up parts of the community and we all bring different things to it. You know, that's that's the reality of being Aboriginal now. And, you know, communities often branded around a lot. But we all bring different stories of how we found our way there. I'm, I got lost in the system and found my way back. I'm really sort of proud of that. And I'm proud that I can be here right now at 53 and be quite content, you know, where I didn't feel much... To haven't ever felt really being content and a lot of that's to do with feeling proud about my culture it's really important for us to be aboriginal people first and then mm. queer people i think yeah mm. and anna do you want to tell me about yeah talk to me about racism in the queer community and also how that affects your perception of yourself you know i always introduce myself because i have to write a lot of bios and things for work and i always introduce myself by saying that i'm a woman of color and that I'm black and brown and First Nations and Afro-Brazilian. And then I say I'm queer and all those things afterwards. I always think about how even the term like queer people of color, I feel like it should be like people of color who are queer, you know? Even just that term of placing like those words in that way is, you know, weird. I get really anxious talking about being light-skinned and having that experience because I get shut down a lot about it. I think it's important for me to talk about being a light-skinned person because of how I came to be light-skinned. There was a lot of horrible things that happened for me to be this way. When you look up my, like the Puri people who would be my people in Brazil, the word they use to describe us is that we are extinct, like animals. I think if I don't talk about all those things, it will mean that colonizers won in that project to erase us, and I refuse to let them win. I try very hard to prioritize people who are more visibly of color. Like It's even weird to have this conversation in so-called Australia because of what went on here with like eugenics and all that and like to be telling light-skinned aboriginal people that you know they have a lot of privilege when you're like standing on stolen land that was never ceded is unacceptable whenever i try to talk about it in like even more so in spaces that are cutie pop i've always been like immediately shut down no matter how much i try to acknowledge my privilege and no matter how much i try to not take all the space People perceive me in different ways. Like some people think I'm white. Other people, they do like meth meme lady face at me, like trying to figure out what I am. So it like my experience always depends on people's perceptions of me. So I will experience certain levels of racism, but it's circumstantial for me. Also, yeah, it really worries me that, like, in the cutie pop community, we shut each other down so much and censor each other on, like, what we can and cannot say. And we're, like, very willing to give cookies and glorify white allies, quote-unquote allies, for doing the bare minimum. But we're really mean to each other. 
Can you I know. just add to that? Sure. That it happens in the Aboriginal community. Unfortunately, it's another product of colonisation, you know. And, you know, it's got a term that I saw in 2008 called lateral violence. And I guess we fight about who's the most authentic Aboriginal person. I understand why it happens, but it's super anxiety-producing. And it's not worth putting another Aboriginal person down. And we need to support each other, no matter what our stories are, you know, we're such a small community. I know it's a fight for resources in resources mm. in the broadest concept. And I know it happens in the queer community too and probably in the cutie pop community as well, you know, these are repressed groups. And that's tend because to do it. Yeah. there's so little space that's yeah. been given that people have to fight exactly. for. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like we have really high expectations of each other. Mm. But coming to terms, like I talk with a lot of people who are like how Peter said, like you came to find like your Aboriginality and connect with your Aboriginality sort of after you connected with your queerness I see that happen a lot with yeah light-skinned people of color and you know you go through these moments like I remember when like I've always known that I'm brown and black and all of these things but I had this moment where I was like I'm brown and black and this is amazing and I want to talk about it and I want to scream about it at the top of my lungs and all of these things and it's because you're excited and it's like you know that's probably not the right way to go about things but you don't know so it's like this constant learning process you have to be patient with people it's about sort of learning your place in the world as like a light-skinned person I don't want to take the space but I want to take a little bit of space because my experiences are valid any tips or suggestions or loving words for other queer people of color other queer first nations people based on your experiences just to the aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander queer community that it's okay, you know, it's okay to be ourselves. It's okay to have an Aboriginal identity, to have a queer identity. We're out there and we can do amazing things. You can do anything you like and don't be limited by what people say of you, especially when you're young and things are coming out, you know, like things are emerging in your life and we're here in the community and we're really proud and come find us. I don't know, we're all valid. I think that's really, yeah, we're all valid people as well. So mm. we're really valid Aboriginal people. Yeah, like I'm still learning and figuring these things out. And the things that I'm like trying to go by at the moment are be mindful of your privilege. So like if you're in so-called Australia and are non-Indigenous, remind yourself that you do benefit from Indigenous dispossession every day, no matter how much racism you face. And then figure out what you can do about it, be it donating money to organizations or showing up for protests and fundraisers and so on. If you are light-skinned like me, learn how to make space for other people. But yeah, like I said, taking up some space is important because yeah our experiences are real and they're valid don't be ashamed of your culture because you're afraid that white queers or white people in general will judge you for it your race and your culture are as much a part of who you are as your queerness if not more so so celebrate it and yeah be kinder to each other allow each other to make mistakes allow yourself to make mistakes we don't have to all get along because we're cutie pop you know we all have our different stories but i believe that we are stronger together so yeah treat each other with respect and be kind you've been listening to qr code with anya saravanan in conversation with zoya gill peter waples crow and anna maria gomides listen and download our episodes from 3cr.org.au forward slash qr code and follow us on facebook at qr code 3cr QR Code would like to thank the City of Yara for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Our theme music is Ritual for Transformation, produced by Michele Veschel. 
Next time on QR Code, Michele Vashor will be unpacking the term neuroqueer, the intersection of being neurodiverse and queer. Thank you for listening. <laughs>